Okay, picture that thing that you've always wanted to learn. Now, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. So many people just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash ratchet. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash ratchet. Masterclass.com slash ratchet. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable. Sorry, 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 we're a little late. Um, (laughs) I'm recording this on Wednesday. It was due yesterday. I've been gallivanting nonstop since I got home. I was at the hair salon. I had to, I took my braids out. I had to get my hair trimmed. I was telling my hairdresser about my schedule since I've been here. And I was like, yeah, I'm just like out here gallivanting. The woman who was doing hair the next bowl over, she heard me say gallivanting and she kind of corrected me. She was like, you know, in a Caribbean household, she said my mother would get so upset if I said gallivanting because that's what my mother said. When you're just outside being aimless and reckless and unpurposeful, you just, you know, you just, you just outside. I was like, no, no, no. I use the word correctly. That's what I'm doing. But I'm trying to catch up with everybody and um, keep a bunch of promises and commitments that I made to folks last time I was here because I didn't have time last time either. And I was here for six weeks and I was like, no, when I'm back, we can. So I'm trying to do that, too. It's just I'm just all over the place. I spoke at Howard on Monday. My friend Panama Jackson, very smart brothers, Panama, excellent writer. But he is a journalism professor at Howard. He asked me to come in last time I was here and speak to his students. I wasn't able to do so because the schedule didn't allow. But I was like, next time I'm home, I got you. So I'm back. So I went to speak to the students. Lovely, absolutely lovely students. Kind of made me miss J school. They start their class discussion talking about pop culture and angles for news stories. So the discussion on Monday was Drake is supporting Tory Lanez. Tory, who's locked up, Tory, who shot Meg, like was legally convicted of shooting Meg, him. So the students were charged with coming up for different angles, different approaches of how to do that story. They're so smart. I sat there watching them like a proud auntie. I remember being a journalism student, I guess still an English major, but I started taking journalism classes my senior year of college and sitting around in class and brainstorming. I also used to look forward to when we'd have the special guest. The person who'd come in and, you know, not just give us the theoretical versions of, of what journalism life could look like, but the people who are, you know, actually working journalists. I haven't actually written anything since, what's the last thing I wrote? Probably that Essence cover story on Nisi and Jessica. It was good, I guess. It got nominated for a GLAAD award. I didn't win, but I got nominated. That counts for something. I think that was the last thing I actually wrote. I mean, I write every day. I just don't publish stuff, but like actual like journalism, I think that was it. That was before the first time I left for Ghana, but it was very humbling. I felt very honored 
to be invited to speak to the students as a journalist who is successful and, and wise enough to come into the classroom and share their perspective and offer them advice or guidance or inspiration or insight. It was a very 360 moment. I was like, oh, I'm the adult in the room. I'm fully aware that I'm in my mid-40s. I really should feel like an adult. Anybody who's also in their mid-40s, unless you're like in charge of children, do you really feel like an adult? I asked my mom once. I said, like, when do you feel like an adult? And she said, when you're home. I said, really? Like, you only feel like an adult when I'm around? And she was like, I only feel responsible when you're around. When you're here, like, even as an adult, I need to know that you're safe. I need to know that you're warm. I need to know that you're fed. Like, I'm a parent. But she was like, when you're not here, like, no, I don't feel like an adult. (laughs) I was like, ma'am, you're past the age of retirement. And you don't feel like an adult? And she was like, should I? (laughs) I guess not. I have good news. I don't know if you follow me on social media. I don't assume everybody that listens to the podcast also follows on social. But if you don't, this is a worthy occasion to go check out Instagram or Facebook. Last time I was in D.C., I sat for a segment about influential residents in the city for NBC Washington. They just greenlit the idea when I was here and they asked me to sit for it. And they were like, you know, it's not going to air for a while, but we want to make sure we get you. I hemmed and hawed about it. I have real issues about other folks having control of my narrative. White folks, like I said in a previous episode, but all folks too. But NBC Washington did what I think is a really beautiful and a really great segment. I cried when I watched it. I thought they did a really good representation of what I do with CSUN World and my travel and my adventures. I've been very fortunate in my career to be awarded and celebrated on many platforms, but the love you get from home, I know people say that all the time, but it's genuinely true. The love you get from home hits much, much different, much harder. As is very often is the case is you have to leave and go somewhere else to come home to be celebrated. When people at home start claiming you because you've gone off in the world and basically wrecked your city, right? And they're proud of you. That's kind of like a mama, I made it moment. Shout out to NBC Washington. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What else have I been getting into? That's pretty much it. Just brunches and lunches and cocktails and all of that as much as I can before I get on this plane to LA. I'm headed out to LA for Leading Women Defined. It's Deborah Lee's big women's conference. She's been doing it probably 10 years now, 11 years, maybe longer. I didn't start going until 2018. It's one of those conferences that I try not to miss. I didn't come back for it last year. I was living in South Africa at the time to get from South Africa back to East America on a direct flight is 15 hours. As much as I love the conference, I'm like, I am there in spirit. I wish you ladies well. I will see you the following year. So here I am. That's always a fun time. Really dope women, really great panels. If you're a longtime follower, remember when I got to dance with Debbie Allen? And by dance, I mean that very loosely. When I moved my body around across a ballroom and Debbie Allen was present, she was trying to teach us ballet, like these very graceful moves. And I'm just not the most graceful, coordinated person in that way. But I moved my body from one end of the room to the other, mostly on beat, while Debbie Allen watched. And then we all did stretches and took pictures, and it was pretty fabulous. And I was like, oh my God, it's Debbie Allen. There's a lot of people there that's like, oh my God, it's so-and-so. It's like every Black woman who works in a C-suite in the entire country. It's And then me, like, what do you do? I do a podcast. (laughs) My dad was like, stop saying that. Obviously, you got an invite, so you're worthy to be in the room. And I was like, it's not a matter of me thinking I'm worthy. It's just a matter of me recognizing that, like, literally 98% of the room works in the C-suite. Regardless of our titles, we are all God's children. 
I'm just saying. I've been watching TV. I actually watched this before I got here, but we didn't talk about it. American Fiction is on Amazon Prime. I think I bought it because that's all that was available. So good. So not what I was expecting. I read the book, Erasure, that it was based on, like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. I don't necessarily remember everything about it, but I remember it was a good read. I still have it on the shelf somewhere. But American Fiction is based on that book. Somehow, I thought the story, these are, these are not spoilers, and even if it was, the movie's been out for months now. I thought, and this is based on the commercials, I guess, I thought it was more about work than it was about personal relationships and family. And I was glad I was wrong. It's a very layered film, which I'm very grateful for. I thought it was really smart. I thought it was really well done. I've watched it a few times. Everyone talks about how amazing Jeffrey Wright is because Jeffrey Wright is amazing and Jeffrey Wright is the star. And Jeffrey Wright is always amazing. He's consistently amazing. He's one of those people that if I see Jeffrey Wright is in a film, I'm like, okay, I'll check it out. Like, just that's all I need. Jeffrey Wright, boom. Sterling K. Brown is another one who's also in this film. Sterling K. Brown is really, really, really amazing in this film. And I don't feel like he's getting his just due when people talk about this film. I really appreciate the roles that he's taken post This Is Us because he very easily could be stereotyped as Randall Pearson, who's a really good character. Stereotype's not the word when it applies to actors. I can't remember the word. Cast. I can't remember the word. But it's like when you get stuck playing the same role over and over and over again. That's that's what I'm trying to describe. But he very much could get stuck in the role of Randall Pearson. But he's taken like these really amazing roles. And one of them is the character that he plays in American fiction. He's Jeffrey Wright's brother, a recent divorcee, married to a white lady who we never see, with children who we never see. And he's just recently, as my friend David Johns likes to say, not come out, but welcome in. He's recently announced that he's gay. He's in his, I would say, late 30s, early 40s in the film. And he's trying to make up for lost time. All the times that he didn't get to be openly gay and date hot young men and make stupid, wild, adventurous, but also fun and memorable decisions while dating. He is gallivanting and frolicking. But it's a really smart, well-layered character. To hear the description of the character, it could very much sound like typecast is the word I was looking for. Boom. In this instance, I don't mean typecast. I think he could very much come across as a stereotype, but he gives many layers and much humanity to the character, which he does in all his roles. He's very smart as an actor that way. I really enjoyed him in American fiction. I enjoyed the movie as a whole. Tracy Ellis Ross is in it. Erica Alexander, a.k.a. Pam from Cosby, a.k.a. Maxine from Living Single. Issa is in it. Um, really good film. Highly recommend if you haven't had a chance to see. I also watched Tyler Perry's new film on Netflix, Mea Coppola. <laughs> I talked about it on a previous episode because we were talking about Kelly and I was saying how much I like Kelly and so I was going to give the film a try. This woman DM'd me and she asked, do you think that you'll review the, the new Tyler Perry film? And I told her, I was like, probably not. At this point... Tyler Perry has, what, like 20, 30 films? You know what you're getting. I'm not the biggest fan of Tyler Perry films. I've been highly critical of Tyler Perry's films, of his creativity, of his work, of his writing. Lots of things over the years. But he's consistent. You might say it's consistently bad, but I know what I'm getting. 
I figured if I tune in to watch this film because I want to support Kelly, then it really makes no sense for me to use my platform to drag a movie and basically say all the same things that I've said about all the other movies publicly and really just interchange names of characters. So I watched Mea Coppola completely expecting to hate it. A whole bunch of people had already watched it and were, you know, dragging it as the internet tends to do. I heard Kelly looked beautiful. I heard her wardrobe was nice. I heard about the paint scene before I watched the film. So I wasn't expecting very much. It is not a perfect film, no. However, I found myself actually enjoying it. Yes, there are plot holes. Yes, there is a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense. Yes, there are entirely melodramatic moments. Some characters like the mother or Kelly's sniveling husband in the film are completely over the top. The last 10 minutes of the film, completely chaotic nonsense. And still, and still, I was like, I'm entertained. There were moments where I was laughing out loud from deep in my chest. I don't know if I was supposed to because it's an erotic thriller, not a comedy. There was a point in the movie where Kelly's sniveling husband was trying to tell her that she couldn't take well-paying work. She went in the drawer and pulled out all these envelopes, bills, and she was like, pick one. Pick one. Which one are you paying? You're telling me not to take paying work? Which bill are you paying? You're an anesthesiologist who went to work high and drunk and got fired. I have been floating this whole goddamn family. You can't afford shit in this house, so you're not going to tell me what work I can or cannot take. People are like, Tyler Perry's movies always have women who are emasculating their husbands. He emasculated himself. Sir, you went to work drunk and high and was giving her lazy, unenthused, quick pipe. I was like, sir, you got to pick a struggle. You can't be broke and lay bad pipe. Come on. The white mom. She was annoying as hell. That's my biggest critique of the film. I was like, at some point, Kelly should have hopped over a table on that lady. It was only right. She had it coming. Trevante Rhodes. I told y'all last episode how much I don't like Trevante Rhodes. The man is is a god among mere mortals. Physically. He's fine as hell. Even with the bad haircut. Because I didn't like his hair in this film. But his body. like My God. And his face. Whole time I was watching the movie, I was like, you know, Michael Ealy could have played this role too. <laughs> Where is Michael Ealy? I feel like we haven't seen him in a minute. Like Michael Ealy and Michael B. Jordan have been missing in action. I'm like, where are y'all? We used to see y'all all the time. And now you're like hiding or something. Like, what, what are you doing? What are you working on? Like, if you're working, that's fine. We'll see you soon. But I'm like, are y'all just hiding for no reason? Like, come out and talk to us. Come play with us. Post something on Instagram. Like, we need to see you. We miss you. The sex scene. I guess that's another critique I have of the movie. They didn't really spread the buildup for the intimacy over time. It was like three scenes back to back. Like it could be a moment and then she leaves and then she comes back and then there's a moment. But then she stops and then they get on a bike. It's very Love Jones. They get on the back of a motorcycle. It's very visually stunning. If you haven't watched the movie, fast forward ahead three minutes because I need to talk about this in detail. So Kelly is at Trevante's house. I don't remember his name in the movie. Starts with a Z. She's at his house. And he tries to kiss her. And she's like, absolutely not. But she's still standing there. And then this naked white woman in heels walks up the steps. So Kelly is like, this is weird. And then leaves in this jankety ass elevator. I hated that elevator, the whole movie. And goes downstairs. She gets news from her friend that her husband has been acting up. She's clearly very attracted to Trevante. She goes back upstairs and it's not quite clear what she wants. At the time Kelly leaves on the elevator, 
the naked white woman is on her knees servicing Trevante. Kelly sees all this. So I'm like, when you go back upstairs, like, what, what are you going upstairs for? Like, you trying to join them for a threesome? Kelly goes back upstairs and, like, goes back upstairs to the house and then goes upstairs because he lives in a loft. Like, goes upstairs to his bedroom. The, the white woman is on top of him, riding him off beat. She pushes the white woman off of him. She gets up wordlessly and just walks out, sits up, stands up, and starts tonguing down Kelly. And I was like, you know how you say somebody was just fucking somebody else? When you say it, you usually mean like somebody like bounced from a relationship to a next relationship. Not like 10 seconds ago, your penis was inside another human and now your tongue is inside my mouth. So nobody's going to get like a wet wipe or even a towel. We're not going to gurgle some mouthwash and even some gum. Like we're just going to go straight from like one person to the next. He tongues down Kelly. Kelly gets overwhelmed. She's conflicted, I guess, because she is a married lady. He grabs some motorcycle jackets and they take this Love Jones-esque ride to nowhere. I was like, where are they going? They take this wordless, silent motorcycle ride. Like, there's no conversation. And then they come back to the house and Trevante puts down tarp and still unshowered. And then he and Kelly have, like, this, um, this visually stunning, amazing sex with paint on the tarp on the floor. It was very sexy. Visually stunning. The whole movie was very nice to look at. All the artists on Instagram was like, don't try that shit at home. That paint will never come out. That paint will be stuck on you forever. Yeast infections. Do not try that at home. It looked good for the movie. But at no point did this man take a shower. It really bothered me. Cleanliness. It's next to godliness. According to the signs in all Baptist churches. I like the movie. I wrote a review of the movie. I actually called it amazing. I've watched it three times. And not just for the sex scene. My favorite scene in the movie is they're on the elevator. <laughs> this is so stupid. And, you know, Kelly has drawn this line in the sand. Like, I'm your lawyer. You're my client. And this is inappropriate. And I'm a married woman and blah, blah, blah. He was like, okay, big girl. I see you, big girl. <laughs> it tickles me. <laughs> I've watched that scene at least 20 times. I just keep hitting the 10-second back button. It just it tickles my soul. I see you, big girl. <laughs> He has a little growl in his voice when he says it. His voice cracks a little bit. It's fascinating. <laughs> I love it. I said the movie was amazing. Just, I was yelling at the screen. I was invested. As far as Tyler Perry movies go, I mean, it's, is it getting an Oscar? No. Is it getting awarded anything at all? No. It's number one on Netflix in America, and it's been that for at least three days. It was number one this morning when I saw Netflix. People dragged the hell out of me, too. They were like, how are you a writer? And you like the Tyler Perry film. I'm like, y'all, everything ain't deep. There's a time for deep. There's a time for just, you know, basic enjoyment. I enjoyed it. Congratulations to Tyler Perry and Kelly Rowland on their number one film. I like Kelly. She's beautiful on the screen. The camera loves her. She's a gorgeous woman. I saw a lot of people criticizing her acting. They were like, she has one face. It didn't bother me. This was the equivalent of a Lifetime movie that just happened to be on Netflix because Tyler Perry has that big deal with them. Mm. I need to just remind people sometimes, ratchet and respectable. Not or. You don't have to choose. You could be both. I told somebody on my Instagram because she went so far fucking in. And I was like, your bougie ass needs grass. Like, touch it, smoke it, do something. Folks think I'm like the poster child for bouginess sometimes. And I'm like, not really. I have my moments for sure. But I was like, I actually just, you know... Enjoy non-bougie shit, too. 
Rick Ross, Langston Hughes, Maya Coppola, American Fiction. I told you I went to get a grill because I did it on Friday. The episode went up on Friday. I went to get fitted for my grill. I have a retainer behind my bottom teeth and it's just a grill for the bottom. So the guy said he couldn't do the grill across six teeth because it would be metal on metal. The grill would hit my retainer and it would be uncomfortable. So it's eight across. It's the highest carat gold he had available and it's blinged out. I can't wait. I got like four more days before it's ready. I'll be in LA. I wanted to take it to LA with me. I'm going to an award show while I'm there and I have to walk the red carpet and I really wanted to wear my grill. My dress has rhinestones and so I figured, you know, my teeth would match my dress. I think about these things. Okay, picture that thing that you've always wanted to learn. Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. So many people just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or reframe your thinking with Ava DuVernay, Masterclass has you covered. With Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. There are over 200 classes to pick from, with new classes added every month. Like using humor to make your mark with Kevin Hart, which made me rethink my approach to public speaking. With Masterclass, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So there's no risk. And right now... Our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash ratchet. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash ratchet. Masterclass.com slash ratchet. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the amount of choices there are when you're shopping for something? Whether you're looking for cereal or toilet paper, there are so many options. It's hard to know what's best for you. When it comes to finding skincare products that actually work, it's even more overwhelming. I was dealing with a breakout and I went to buy cleanser for it and there were 30 different options at my local drugstore. Finding skincare products that actually work for you is complicated and that's why we are excited to partner with Apostrophe, the sponsor of this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. Whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. Through Apostrophe, you can get access to oral and topical medications that use clinically proven ingredients to help clear acne. Simply fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and medical history. Then snap a few selfies and a dermatology provider will create a customized treatment plan just for you. Apostrophe offers access to prescription treatments for all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne and even back, chest, and butt acne. Treat breakouts from head to toe. My skincare goals are always to keep my skin looking as healthy and clear as possible. And what I love so much about Apostrophe, that it's a tailored treatment plan specifically for my skin. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash ratchet when you use our code ratchet. 
That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash ratchet and click get started. Then use our code ratchet at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. I watched that Wendy Williams documentary. Remember we talked about People Magazine had the exclusive on the Wendy Williams documentary and then speaking to the family. So we talked about the documentary in detail, the motivations for the documentary to showcase a a bad guardianship, which I was like, that's bullshit. The article describing the documentary sounded bad. What I watched, and I watched all four episodes. I was in tears after episode two. I watched all four episodes though, only because a couple of my friends called, because I had no plans to watch the second night. And a couple of my friends called and were like, no, 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 you have to watch it. I, I feel so sad and terrible for her. Five minutes into the documentary, Wendy has a relapse, maybe is the best way to describe it. But she's been abusing alcohol and has to be checked into a wellness facility. Let me back up. Wendy, she's an executive producer on the film, agreed to do this film because she was supposed to be launching a podcast. Not so long into filming, she has this relapse and has to go to a wellness facility. The cameras do not follow her there. After she comes out of the wellness facility, Wendy's manager and her guardian invite the cameras to come back in and continue filming Wendy. After everyone watched this four-part series, actually I would say after the first night, tons of people were accusing the producers of exploiting Wendy. And the producers came back and said, we didn't know that Wendy was experiencing dementia. We didn't know that she had like these health problems. Our only goal was to show what this poor guardianship was and what it's doing to Wendy, to which everyone has called bullshit. 10 minutes into the documentary, and again, it's a four-part series. It's about an hour long, each about 47 minutes each episode. But at most, 10 minutes into the documentary, you can see that this woman is not well. I mean, if it's not well from dementia or of, of any of the other health issues that she's facing, then it's not well from alcohol abuse. She's clearly not well. Even if you can't diagnose what it is, with just basic common sense, you can look at her and say she needs serious help. She needs an intervention. She should not be on camera. There are parts in the documentary where she's just completely out of it. I felt as bad as it was the first two episodes, it went off the rails in number three and number four. There's a point in in episode three where Wendy goes to LA with this woman who calls herself her publicist. In episode two, the publicist first appears and the producers ask her, do you think anything's wrong with Wendy? Do you think that everything's okay? Do you think that Wendy has a drinking problem? And she was like, you know, it's documented that Wendy did have health issues, that Wendy was battling drinking issues. It was like, this came out of Wendy's own mouth when she was on the show. Yes, that was an issue, but that's currently not an issue. And a lot of people were like, how can this woman say that with a straight face? She's the publicist. They said, do you think Wendy has additional health issues? Do you think Wendy is, you know, fit to do a podcast? Like, is Wendy okay 
to come back to entertainment. And she says, absolutely. Wendy's in great shape, great condition. We're looking forward to like this next phase of Wendy's career. She's literally on Wendy's payroll. She's a crisis publicist. It's literally her job to smooth her clients' rough edges and to buff out anything that might look messy. I actually wasn't mad that she sat on camera and denied that Wendy has any issues. She's her publicist. She's literally on the payroll to paint Wendy in her best light. I get that. What lost me? For many reasons. This publicist takes Wendy to LA. The publicist says she has a meeting set up. She doesn't tell Wendy's manager she's taking her to LA. She doesn't tell Wendy's guardian she takes her. she's taking her to LA. They're driving in the car and the woman gets a call about Wendy walking the red carpet at the Oscars. And she says, hey, Wendy, do you want to walk the red carpet at the Oscars? And Wendy says, who's Oscar? This woman has been in entertainment, has been a fixture in entertainment for basically the last 30 years. She does. She didn't remember what the Oscars were. Then the publicist takes her to a restaurant. I think it was Castaway in North Hollywood. That's one of my favorite restaurants. She takes her to this really gorgeous restaurant and Wendy orders like a vodka martini. She sat there and let Wendy have two cocktails to the point that the producers asked, hey, do you think that's a good idea? And so she was like, I've never been around Wendy when she's drunk. She's only having a couple drinks and look at her. She's fine. And I was like, fuck this chick. That's got to be some kind of abuse. You can look at Wendy and tell that she's not okay. She's half out of her mind. She can't even remember what the Oscars are. And you go sit there and give her not even one drink, but two? Say you, say you don't even like that lady without saying you don't even like her. Say you don't give a fuck about her life, about her health, about her family, whether she lives or dies. Like you just don't give a fuck at all. For whatever little measly paycheck you getting from her, you willing to compromise this lady's health. Why? On camera, no less. No one of decency and common sense should ever employ that woman ever again. Horrible. There's another scene. This one was on everybody. I was like, why are y'all entertaining this? Wendy vapes a lot. Which I was like, is this any better than alcohol? I'm like, she don't have lung problems yet. But she's sure to get it with all this vaping. Wendy wanted a specific kind of vape. She said they sold it near the studio at the Wendy Williams show. So they pull up to the shop. The one that the driver has taken her to on many occasions. And Wendy's like, that's not the shop. The shop is near the studio. They're like, this is the shop. This is the shop around the store, around the corner from the studio. Wendy's like, no, no, no. Take me around the corner. Take me past the studio. Take me to the shop. They, I usually get my stuff. So they literally circle the block, go back, go past the studio. And they come right back to the same smoke shop because that's the one they always go to. Wendy was like, I thought I told you to take me to the studio. They're like, Wendy, we just took you to the studio. No recollection. None whatsoever. This scene of them driving Wendy around and her arguing back and forth about this is the right vape, this isn't the right vape, get me the right vape. The same woman, the publicist, is hopping in and out the car. Wendy is berating her, trying to find the right vape pen. Y'all don't see that this woman is not clear in her right mind, that she's agitated and confused and has no business smoking this vape. Why don't y'all take her home? She's the one with diagnosed mental health issues. Y'all ain't been diagnosed with nothing, but y'all doing dumb shit nonetheless. What is your excuse? It was so sad. The documentary, especially parts four, talks to Wendy's family extensively. They're not perfect people. I didn't get the sense that anybody in the family was derelict or irresponsible or would just run through Wendy's money, who didn't care about Wendy, just wanted to use her. 
Wendy has a niece who appears to be in her 30s. She seems very capable, very loving towards her aunt. It's unclear to me why she wasn't made a guardian. Wendy has a brother. I know that she had public feuds with her brother at some point, but even still, I don't doubt that he loves and cares for his sister based on what I saw in the documentary. He, he's a harder personality. He's not sweet. I wouldn't necessarily call him caring or nurturing, but he don't fuck around. And I got the sense that he also cares about Wendy's well-being. There's also a sister who didn't participate in most of the documentary. She seemed to be very opposed to it. And she came in at the last minute. And she's a firecracker. I liked her a lot. She's another one don't fuck around. She has a little bit more caring than the brother. But she don't take no shit. And she wants to take care of her sister. Wendy's father is still alive. He's an older gentleman. And he's got his full faculties. He just needs a little extra care and attention. But the sister and the niece went over to the house and they were making sure his fridge was stocked and just checking on him and I'll bring over some lasagna and, you know, just loving on dad. I like the way I saw them care for dad and I would like to see Wendy cared for in the same way. Wendy likes being in New York. She has this manager, Will. I couldn't read him for the first two parts of the documentary. He very much wants Wendy to work. He was taking her out to do these photo shoots, takes her out around town so she can see and be seen. I think he was in denial about Wendy's health, her mental state, her dementia. He was described as he was Wendy's friend. He met, she met him out and about. And then he was her jeweler. And then he became her manager. He has no medical or healthcare training whatsoever. He would come to Wendy's house seemingly every day to check on her and he would often find her drunk. He would find bottles of liquor, empty bottles of liquor all over the house and he would get very frustrated with Wendy and he would berate her for, for being drunk. He did seem to care about her or does seem to care about her, but he also, for most of the documentary, at least the first two parts, is completely in denial about what Wendy is capable of. He's talking about Wendy's going to do this podcast. Wendy can't hold a clear and coherent conversation. She can't focus. She can't do a podcast. It's very sad to watch someone who has spent their life being in the know, being quick, being witty, storing massive amounts of information, communicating well on the fly. That's what she did as a profession and she did it well. She's one of the best to do it. Even if you didn't like the content, you can't deny the talent. And she's not able to do that anymore. I think some of her team is in deep denial about what she's capable of. I will give Will credit on the back end. When he got up from the table and told the waiters, like, no liquor, when they went down to Florida, Will went to her hotel room and made sure that there was no mini bar, and then called down to the front desk or the kitchen and was like, no liquor can come to this room. I don't care who calls. I don't care how much they offer you. No liquor can come to this room. And I was like, okay, he actually gives a fuck. He's in over his head. He don't really know exactly what he's doing, but he gives enough of a fuck that he doesn't want this woman to harm herself further. And that I respect. That publicist, though, I was so mad at that lady. How you gonna give somebody that you know abuses alcohol and if nothing else, right? She gotta be on a million meds for all the issues that she's dealing with. Why would you give her alcohol? I know she a grown woman. She's a grown woman who's not in her right mind. She couldn't even remember the Oscars. Wendy Williams. I literally gasped at that scene. I gasped. I was so shocked. None of this ever should have been on TV. 
I understand everybody wants to make money. I was like, could y'all kindly go ahead and focus? I was like, could y'all kindly go ahead and focus on trying to get Wells Fargo to, to remove the block on her account? You do better there. But to put Wendy on TV like this, like for her to be remembered as this, as opposed to who she was at her best, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. Oh, one more thing. Angela White. I only mention her former name because people may not know her as her new name. Formerly known as Black China. If if he's done miracles on me was a person. God bless Angela White. She went over to Wendy's house in New York. And outside of family, that was the first person I saw that I felt like genuinely loved Wendy. I think Will, the manager, I think he cares. I think he's conflicted between wanting to make the money and having to deal with this client who's falling apart and but trying to prop her up and make her look decent so that they can get to the bag. I felt outside of family, Angela was the only person that came to the house that, that they showed, at least on the documentary, who really just gave a damn about Wendy, the person. She didn't want nothing from her, but for her to be happy and for her to be as well as she can be under the circumstances. God bless Angela White. That's a beautiful soul. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Have y'all read this new lawsuit against Diddy? It's 72 pages. Are we going to read all 72 today? Where are we in recording? Because you know I edit the hell out of this. There's all sorts of crazy allegations in this lawsuit. I mean, I don't put anything past Diddy for clarity. But this lawsuit is from his... It's from a producer, a man, who worked on the Love album with Diddy. He accuses him and a whole bunch of other celebrities of a whole bunch of shit. And he says he has photos and hundreds of hours worth of video. Which I was like, word? This lawsuit, I should note, has a trigger warning. I put trigger warnings in the caption that describe the episodes. People don't read the captions. So this is me saying, trigger warning, that we are going to talk about violence and sexual assault and abuse and all sorts of horrible things. There's also a trigger warning on the lawsuit. I'll go ahead and read you that and let it also suffice as a trigger warning for what we're going to talk about today. This this is page one. There was also a trigger warning on Cassie's lawsuit, which I remember a bunch of lawyers at the time was like, I've never seen a lawsuit with a trigger warning. It needed one. It says, trigger warning. This document contains highly graphic information of a sexual nature, including sexual assault. Additionally, there are graphic images of the aftermath of a shooting, redacted images of sexual intercourse, redacted images of minors, sex workers, and prostitutes, details of sex trafficking, and the illegal distribution of guns and drugs. So page one is establishing jurisdiction and venue. Then we're talking about the parties involved. It's a lot of people being sued here. It's Rodney Jones is the plaintiff, and he's suing Sean Combs. Justin Combs, the boy, the son, the CEO of Universal Music Group, Diddy's chief of staff, 
got they got this lady whole address actually all these people's address and apartment numbers jesus listed in this lawsuit and it's irresponsible to release this without blocking those out motown records i just mentioned they're suing the, the chairman and ceo um but they're also suing universal music group as a whole and then also love records which is under motown records they're also suing combs enterprises we're on page seven they're giving some background about the plaintiff okay this is further down on page seven summary of events it says from september 2002 to september 2023 mr jones that's the plaintiff produced nine songs on mr combs love album it says mr jones lived with mr combs that would be diddy for months at a time spending holidays and birthdays and missing major family events he spent time with Diddy at his residences in LA and New York and Miami. And he also spent several weeks aboard a yacht that was rented by Mr. Combs in the U.S. Virgin Islands. He says the claims that are raised in his complaint have been corroborated through witness statements, video, audio recordings, and images that Mr. Jones has in his possession. It says Diddy required Mr. Jones to record him constantly. On several occasions, Diddy took Mr. Jones' cell phone and began recording himself. As a result, Mr. Jones has secured hundreds, all caps and in bold, of hours of footage and audio recordings of Mr. Combs, his staff, and his guests engaging in serious illegal activity. Mr. Jones has secured irrefutable evidence of, oh, this is A through J. It says the acquisition, use, and distribution of ecstasy, cocaine, GHB, ketamine. Is that fake weed? I don't know what ketamine is marijuana and mushrooms the displaying and distribution of unregistered illegal firearms cassie told us about that mr combs provided lace alcohol beverages to minors and sex workers at his homes in california new york the u.s virgin islands and florida mr combs chief of staff christina kk she instructed her staff to retrieve drugs so she can provide them to mr combs for his consumption christian combs oh shit Christian wasn't mentioned earlier, just Justin. Christian Combs drugged and sexually assaulted a woman. Mr. Combs detailed how he planned to leverage his relationship with Bishop T.D. Jakes to soften the impact of his public image after Cassie Ventura's lawsuit. Young Miami's cousin, Carisha, and or assistant, so the cousin was also the assistant, sexually assaulted Mr. Jones. Actor Cuba Gooding, sexually harassed and assaulted Mr. Jones. Cuba Gooding has like 50 million lawsuits. We talked about him on here before when there were a flurry of, of those Me Too lawsuits right before that bill in New York expired. And then it says there's a rapper redacted on Mr. Combs, on Mr. Combs yacht consorting with underage girls and sex workers. And then it says an R&B singer redacted, name redacted, in Mr. Combs' Los Angeles home consorting with underage girls and sex workers. I don't care about the sex workers. You know my rule. Are, are they adults? Are they consenting? Then I don't care. But underage girls, oh no. We're on page eight. There is an incident on or about September 12, 2002. Mr. Combs held a writer's camp that Mr. Jones attended. It says Diddy and a man that goes by Mr. G were in a heated discussion. They moved the conversation out of the studio and into a restroom adjacent to where Mr. Jones was sitting. 
He says he was about two feet away from the bathroom when multiple gunshots ran out. He said when the shooting ended, the bathroom door opened and the man, Mr. G, was lying on the restroom floor in a fetal position, holding his stomach and bleeding out of his leg hip area. Mr. Jones rushed into the bathroom to aid Mr. G applying pressure to the gunshot wound. He said he asked the crowd to call the ambulance. He said while all this was going on, Mr. Combs and Justin disappeared to another part of the studio. What does Justin have to do with it? If you tell me Justin shot somebody, then like, okay, like just put Justin's name in here. Justin is a grown ass man because we just watched him grow up. Like, I feel like he's nephew status, but I'm like, why his name in here? He's not accused of shooting anyone. It says Mr. Combs gave strict instructions. I guess he returned from wherever he went in the studio to inform the police that he had nothing to do with the shooting. He also told Mr. Jones to lie to the police by telling them that Mr. G was shot standing outside the studio in a drive-by. What? Oh, shit. This is page 10. He provides a screenshot of a news story about a shooting outside the studio. He also has pictures of the aftermath. Are you kidding me? Yep, they're in this lawsuit. I'm looking at them on page 11. There's a bathroom floor covered in blood. There's a toilet covered in blood. Are you kidding me? Mr. Jones has the clothing he wore that day and believes it may still have the stains and DNA of G's blood. What in the Monica Lewinsky? We're on page 11. It says, as a result of the shooting, Mr. Jones is severely traumatized. He now suffers from PTSD, severe anxiety, depression, and insomnia. We're on page 12. It says Mr. Jones was sexually harassed and assaulted by Mr. Combs. He says throughout his time living with Mr. Combs, Mr. Jones was a victim of constant unsolicited and unauthorized groping and touching of his anus by Mr. Combs. These events took place in LA, New York, Florida, and the United States Virgin Islands. He says in addition to the unsolicited and unauthorized touching, Mr. Jones was forced by Mr. Combs to work in Mr. Combs' bathroom as Mr. Combs walked around naked and showered in a clear glass enclosure. Mr. Jones identifies as a heterosexual Christian man. He says he was uncomfortable with Mr. Combs' advances and expressed his discomfort to Mr. Combs' chief of staff, KK. He says KK responded, you know Sean will be Sean. He also says KK attempted to downplay Mr. Combs' groping of Mr. Jones' anus and genitals as, quote, friendly horseplay, stating that those acts were Mr. Combs' way of, quote, showing you that he likes you. This is still page 12. It says Mr. Combs attempted to groom Mr. Jones into engaging in gay sex. It says Mr. Combs was aware that Mr. Jones looked up to an idolized music producer, Stephen Aaron Jordan, a.k.a. Stevie J. It says Mr. Combs used his access to Stevie J and his knowledge of Mr. Jones' admiration of Stevie J to groom and entice Mr. Jones to engage in homosexuality. He says Mr. Combs promised to make sure that Mr. Jones would win producer of the year at the Grammys if he engaged in homosexuality. The following, I'm reading this verbatim, the following are screenshots of the video of Stevie J anally penetrating a Caucasian man. I see screenshots of a video of a man 
who does appear to have CBJ's mouth and head. We done seen it forever in a day on Love and Hip Hop. You can't see particularly what's going on. He's in a bed laying on a pillow. He's shirtless. Because the video is so grainy, I can't quite make out the object that he's embracing. It appears to be a man's leg in the air. This is page 14. Thanksgiving 2022. Mr. Jones is sexually assaulted by young Miami's cousin. It says Mr. Jones was in Diddy's Miami, Florida house. And young Miami and her female cousins were present. It says Diddy was drunk and he offered cocaine to Mr. Jones who rejected him and proceeded to walk to the bathroom. He says while he was in the bathroom, young Miami's cousin burst inside and began groping him. Mr. Jones believes Mr. Combs sent her in there to sexually assault him. It says the woman entered the bathroom, dropped to her knees and began performing oral sex on Mr. Jones exposed penis. He says he pushed her away and exited the bathroom. It says the cousin did not accept Mr. Jones rejection as she proceeded to follow him out of the bathroom. She began to undress and attempted to straddle him and have sex with him in the presence of Mr. Combs and his staff. He says he pushed her off again. And he's provided video of all of them together. Him with Diddy, Carisha, and the cousin. Whew. We're on page 15. It says Trafficking and Victims Protection Act. It says throughout his time with Mr. Combs, Mr. Jones was transported from California to New York, Florida, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. During this time, he was forced to solicit sex workers and perform sex acts to the pleasure of Mr. Combs. He says on or about February 4, 2023, Mr. Combs forced Mr. Jones to bring prostitutes and sex workers back to his home in Miami. He says on February 2nd, Mr. Jones believes that Mr. Combs drugged him. He says he woke up naked, dizzy, and confused. He was in the bed with two sex workers and Mr. Combs. He also recalls aimlessly wandering around the house with no clothes on. He's got pictures. I'm not sure what I'm looking at. There's a, it's a portion of somebody's body and then there's a face that seems to be blacked out or taken in the dark. I don't know what these pictures are supposed to be showing me. It says on another occasion in Miami, this is Thanksgiving 2022, it says Diddy required Mr. Jones to solicit sex workers from Booby Trap. It says Mr. Jones did solicit the sex workers and Mr. Combs forced him to engage in unsolicited sex acts. He says as part of Mr. Jones' sex worker recruitment tools, Mr. Combs asked Mr. Jones to wear an exclusive bad boy baseball cap and that was a signal to any sex worker he approached that Mr. Combs was in town and had sent Mr. Jones to recruit them. He said he had no desire to visit Booby Trap on the River or to solicit sex workers. He says Mr. Combs used his power and influence to intimidate and force Mr. Jones into soliciting the sex workers. It says Mr. Combs used many tactics to maintain dominion and control of Mr. Jones. He promised him a Grammy for producer of the year for the Love album. He offered him $250,000 to purchase all the instruments he wanted. He promised him ownership of a $20 million property, One Star Island in Miami, Florida. He promised access to label executives like the CEO of Universal. He says that Mr. Combs would often switch up his approach. He would go from promising Mr. Jones the world to threatening Mr. Jones with physical harm. It says Mr. Combs threatened to eat Mr. Jones' face and inform Mr. Jones that he was willing to kill his mother, Janice Combs, in order to get what he wants. So he wouldn't think twice 
to harm Mr. Jones. This is page 20. Jesus. Mr. Combs and Justin Combs solicit drugs and engage in illicit sex acts with minors and sex workers. It says, on or about July 2nd, 2023, Mr. Combs had a listening party at his home. He says, present at this party were an R&B singer whose name has been redacted, Justin Combs, sex workers, and underage girls. He said there were at least five women in the crowd who were under the age of 16. It says, Mr. Combs forced all the women to drink Lace de Leon liquor that Mr. Jones believes was laced with ecstasy. He says, after he was forced to drink the Lace shots, Mr. Jones began feeling lightheaded and recalls passing out and waking up at 4 a.m. the following morning naked with a sex worker sleeping next to him. He's provided screenshots. Jesus. I'm looking at them on page 21. He's provided screenshots of Mr. Combs with an underage female. There's a very clear picture of Justin Combs. He identifies a woman in the picture as an underage female. But Justin is literally standing there with his hand in the air. The picture of Mr. Combs and an underage female. She has her arms wrapped around him. A liquor bottle in her hand. Page 21. It says, Mr. Jones believes that Mr. Combs was grooming him to pass him off to his friends. The fear became a reality when Mr. Combs introduced Mr. Jones to Cuba Gooding Jr. while they were on Mr. Combs' yacht. During the introduction, Mr. Combs suggested that Cuba get to know Mr. Jones better. And then he left them alone. There are screenshots from this yacht of Diddy and Cuba Gooding Jr. According to the lawsuit, as evidenced by a video of which screenshots are embedded below, Cuba Gooding Jr. began touching, groping, and fondling Mr. Jones' legs, his upper inner thighs near his groin, the small of his back near his buttocks, and his shoulder. It says Mr. Jones rejected Mr. Gooding's advances, but Mr. Gooding did not stop until Mr. Jones forcibly pushed him away. And there's a screenshot of his encounter with Cuba Gooding Jr. Regarding the Love album, it says throughout his time with Mr. Combs, Mr. Jones was under an implied work-for-hire agreement. It says he was not compensated for his time living with Mr. Combs or for the songs he produced. He notes that he was listed as a producer on the following songs on the Love album's final release. There's one, two... Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine songs. Okay. They ain't paid this man after all this shit. It says Mr. Jones attempted to work with Mr. Combs to secure his publishing and royalty rights for the work he completed on the Love album. It says Mr. Combs only offered him $29,000 for 13 months and thousands of hours of work and nine songs that made it to the Love album. He says, ironically, Mr. Jones was willing to take $50,000, his publishing and royalties. Mr. Combs' self-serving greed would not allow him to pay the additional $21,000. It says Mr. Combs' deceptive business practices became so bad that Mr. Jones was left with no other choice than to make a public plea on social media for Mr. Combs to pay him for his work. He says after publicly requesting that Mr. Combs do the right thing and pay him fairly, Mr. Jones received an onslaught of threatening messages from Stevie J and from Love Records A&R, DeForest Taylor. He has provided screenshots, at least from DeForest, of the text messages. This is page 24. It says, Mr. Combs used his power and influence to threaten and intimidate Mr. Jones. Um, some of what he talks about has been detailed earlier in the lawsuit. He does talk about an occasion where he was in Mr. Combs' bedroom. 
It says Mr. Jones was forced to watch as Mr. Combs displayed his guns and bragged about getting away with shooting people. Uh, Mr. Jones says that Mr. Combs shared that he was responsible for the shooting in the nightclub in New York City with rapper Shine. He shared that Jennifer Lopez carried the gun into the club for him and passed him the gun after he got into an altercation with another individual. He says between Diddy playing with the guns and then talking about the nightclub shooting and then confessing essentially to the nightclub shooting with Shine and then the shooting that he says happened at the studio, the one he said that the guy got shot in the bathroom. He says all of this reinforced Mr. Jones' fear of Mr. Combs and strengthened Mr. Combs' dominion and control of Mr. Jones. He says Mr. Jones felt like he could not tell Mr. Combs no. He also says Mr. Combs consistently made it clear that he has immense power in the music industry and with law enforcement. He would also refer to his head of security, Fahim Muhammad. He says that Mr. Muhammad, as he was known, had the power to make people and problems disappear. He says of that shooting in the bathroom, he said the LAPD showed up and spent hours at the studio after the shooting, and yet there were no arrests. Mr. Jones says he witnessed the LAPD in the restroom, the pictures that were above, and yet no arrests were made. This is page 28. He's talking about the CEO of Universal Music Group. He says that he would come visit Diddy at his home and they would disappear for hours into Mr. Combs' bedroom. He says the head of Universal Music Group sponsored and attended several Love Album listening parties at Mr. Combs' home. He says these parties had sex workers and underage girls present. He says during the parties, the chairman and CEO knew or should have known that Mr. Combs was drugging the attendees through lace bottles of De Leon tequila and Ciroc vodka. He said it was no secret that Mr. Combs had specific bottles of alcohol designated for females and other bottles designated for his staff, his artists, and himself. He said he was spiking women's drinks with ecstasy and other date rape drugs. He says this fact was detailed by former artists and bodyguards of Mr. Combs. I think it's worth mentioning that Diddy and Justin Combs have both denied the accusations in this most recent lawsuit. I'm looking at Us Weekly right now. It says Diddy denies new 30 million sexual assault lawsuit by producer. When I was reading the complaint, I didn't see a number, but apparently it's 30 million. Isn't that what Cassie got, allegedly? Or what Cassie was initially asking for before the New York Times ran a story about the allegations listed in her complaint against Diddy? I think the settlement was probably much higher than 30 million. Like if you're asking for 30 million before you make it public, you should be getting more than 30 million after to shut you up and keep you off the talk show rounds. The statement to Us Weekly, Diddy's attorney denies the accusations by Jones and calls him, quote, a liar. It says Little Rod, that's what Rodney Jones goes by, his producer name, is nothing more than a liar who filed a $30 million lawsuit shamelessly looking for an undeserved payday. His reckless name dropping about events that are pure fiction and simply did not happen is nothing more than a transparent attempt to garner headlines. Diddy's attorney continued, we have overwhelming, indisputable proof that his claims are complete lies. We will address these outlandish allegations in court and take all appropriate action against those who make them. How are you going to fight all these lawsuits? I mean, he settled with Cassie, but there are four other open lawsuits, no? That's a lot of legal fees and also a lot of people accusing you of the same shit. I mean, he's denying everything through his lawyer, as, as he's supposed to. His lawyer is supposed to be like, my client would never. Of course you say that as a defense lawyer. That's literally your job. That's literally why you were hired. That and, you know, trying to get your ass off so you don't spend the rest of your days in jail. 
This is some scandalous shit. I want to see the video. If Sir really wants to make his 30 million real quick, he need to drop one of them videos on TikTok. Drop something from the top five. Not number one, not number two, not number three. Four or five. Drop your fourth or fifth most scandalous video on TikTok. He'll settle with your ass tomorrow like he did Cassie. We'll see. These cases at some point, like they have to move in some fashion. Either they're either dismissed or settled or they go to court something. We just have to be a little more patient and wait and see. Damn. That's the episode. We still haven't talked about Russell Simmons. Can I get it in for Friday? I don't know. I'm going to be at a conference tomorrow and Friday. I'm telling you in advance, Friday's episode is probably going to be late. Work with me. I'm in America. I'm so much more focused overseas. All right. We'll be back on Friday. Thanks again for your patience. Sorry this one is so, so late. I'm not usually this bad. It's a lot happening right now. I'm obviously not telling you about a bunch of stuff. There's, there's stuff. I'm trying to figure out stuff. All right. Talk Friday. Bye. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.